Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. My name is James White. It is a Friday, and uh, we aren't talking about Gnostics today, thankfully. In fact, we do not even have a Gnostic on the line. <laughs> but we uh, are joined today uh, by one of our favorite people to have on. In fact, one of my fellow elders at Apologia Church is undoubtedly extremely, extremely happy uh, that we have this gentleman on uh, because um, he really, really likes him a lot. So I didn't do that just just to make uh, Pastor Zach feel good. But we are joined today from Colorado Springs, Colorado, by none other. I was going to queue up, Jason. I'm sorry, I was going to queue up the Star Trek m- m- music, but I I just totally I totally spaced it. I'm, I'm sorry. I I apologize for that. <laughs> but because uh, you would have appreciated that. Is oh, there, yeah. you know, uh, now which 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 of the uh, which of the series is is your favorite? I really like the original and the next generation. Those would be the the top two. Okay, okay, all right. So, so anybody who uh, is is not uh, aware, Dr. Jason Lyle, the head of Biblical Science Institute (BSI). If you are not a supporter, if you are not on the mailing list, then you need to immediately repent and uh, and get that uh, taken care of, uh, so that you can keep up with what is going on. And we've had Jason. On the program before, and I want to thank you also for joining a couple times now with uh, my daughter, uh, Summer and Joy on Sheologians. I think you're their their favorite scientist uh, to have uh, have on the program as well. <laughs> good to hear. Yeah, well, good, good. So, hey, um, uh, you're up in uh, in Colorado now, so you get to. Uh, I think is is the is the star viewing just a little bit better up there than it was being stuck in Dallas. Oh uh, well, yeah, yeah. I think it is. I think it is. For one thing, I can I can get to darker skies easier. Right. Because uh, when I was living in Dallas, um, I was on the outskirts of Dallas, but the light pollution was just horrible, and I had to drive at least forty five minutes to get to reasonably dark skies where you could see anything. Right. And now my backyard is comparable to that, and I can <laughs> and I can drive. You know, and if I drive. I can drive. Uh, I found a spot. It's about an hour out, but it's um, it's totally black. I mean, it's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So it's easier to get to darker skies. Oh yeah. Well, and I want to thank you. You're the one that uh, sent me the link to the Google Maps overlay. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Isn't which nice? have they have they updated that by the way? Not I, that I've seen. Yeah, I've yeah. But it's still very very useful. And mm-hmm. if people are wondering what the world we're talking about, obviously when uh, if if you don't own your own Hubble space telescope, uh, which which gets rid of all these problems. Um, you have to be very, very concerned about something called light pollution. And man, I had no idea. In fact, uh, Jason and I did some stargazing uh, uh, last year in July up in Evergreen. And I sort of assumed we'd be sort of out in the dark, but the reality is there's still a lot of light pollution, even it's thanks to Denver. Uh, even uh, even out there, uh, I was I was really really surprised, and so you have to if you can get out where it's dark. I learned that from you, and so I've gotten out to Flagstaff. Uh, so I've I've found a spot in Flagstaff uh, that is uh, supposed to be complete darkness and eight thousand feet. Uh, and man, I'll tell you, <laughs> there are a lot it of, st- a <laughs> oh man, there are a lot of stars up there. And, uh, uh, you know, when you can actually see your shadow from the stars, you know, that you're in a good spot. That's, uh, mm-hmm. it's always cold. Uh, 
you must be cold blooded to be an astronomer because uh, it, it's it's always cold up there at that at that time of night or something. But man, it's gorgeous and it's beautiful, and that's when you can start seeing all the deep sky stuff. So. As everybody knows, you infected me, uh, not with COVID-19, um, but with uh, uh, Astronomy uh, 101. Um, and uh, ever since then, I, I mean, I, tra- I used to travel a lot. We all used to travel a lot. Right now, we're just getting used to our cats and dogs and families and stuff like that. Um, but uh, I was out just uh, uh, last week. And I set up the uh, scope that you saw up in um, in Colorado. It's a it's a pretty nice mead. Um, and I was noticing I was noticing that the light pollution really 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 stinks in Phoenix. It's really 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 bad. No deep sky stuff, but you can still see uh, stars and planets real nicely. Even those of us who live in cities. Uh, so first and foremost, uh, what what would you say to uh, people in our audience, because I, I I get this all the time. I people sort of look at me and they go, "Oh, you're you're getting up at two o'clock in the morning to to see Jupiter." Um, that seems really silly. They they live in cities. They've never seen what's up there. I mean, once in a while on a clear night, they see a a few. You know, they see Sirius uh, up there. It's uh, if I'm calling correctly, the brightest star up there, but. Um, they just they just don't see what's up there. What what do you say to folks like that? Oh, you're depriving yourself of one of the most wonderful natural resources the Lord has given us. I mean, the Bible, the Bible singles out the heavens as declaring the glory of God. I mean, every everything God made declares His glory, but there's something really special about the heavens, and you need to do that at least at least once in your life. And and, and once you do it once, you might want to do it again because it's really spectacular. I found a spot again. A, a, hour hour and a half drive from here where, where it's a zero zero light pollution zero and it is absolutely spectacular once your eyes get good and dark adapted it's amazing and uh, and i now have night vision very high quality night vision goggles uh with white phosphor and uh that's fun too because you look up and you just see all kinds of things that uh <laughs> stuff that some stuff that i'd never seen before because for one thing i, I have an h alpha filter for these night vision goggles and that brings out certain nebulae uh, H alpha is a specific color of red, and a lot of nebulae are, have that specific color. Uh, the eyes don't pick up red well at night, but the night vision goggles excel at it. And so, some things that I had never seen before, I was able to see just last year for the first time. And so, it was a new, it's kind of a, a new level of excitement for me. But yeah, you need to do that at least once. You need to get out to dark skies, preferably get access to a telescope and uh, and maybe somebody who knows where to where the good stuff is. And, uh, and check it out. And, of course, I do have a book that sh- shows where all these cool things are at, The Stargazer's Guide to the Night Sky. Uh, if people are, get interested in that, they can get that on our, on our website. Well, now, the, the, ex- you mentioned in a text, you said something about these night vision goggles. Now, are you talking about just having them on or using them to look through a scope? How does that work? Yeah, both. Uh, I, I, uh, the, I, the, the goggles themselves... Uh, I got them at zero magnification. So all it does, it doesn't it doesn't make the sky look bigger. It just makes it 3,000 times brighter. And boy, does it look spectacular. And so just, just panning around is awesome. Wow. Then I can slap an H-alpha filter on it, and, and all of a sudden, just you can see nebulae in, it, just in the sky. 
Uh, I built an adapter for it, though, so I can stick it into my telescope as well. And boy, is that, that amazing. <laughs> well, so, of course uh, can... you built an adapter for right, it. You're yeah. Jason it's Lyle. Really... <laughs> <laughs> there are other ways to do it, but they require replacing the lens. I didn't want to do that. So I just I built a little adapter. It works really well. And you just slap it on there and uh, stick it in. And, and uh, boy, you should see the Swan Nebula with the H-alpha filter. It, it, it's amazing. And so when, when you're here next time, if... Oh yeah! If uh, the situation allows for it, we'll have to. You'll you'll get a kick out of it. Oh well, definitely. I mean, we're yeah. right now. We're supposed to still scheduled uh, to do something late July, early August, uh, and I'm mm-hmm. really hoping that all that still still happens, or it's gonna all it's gonna be it's gonna make 2020 a real bummer of a year if that all gets uh, canceled as well. But mm-hmm. so uh, now, so what you're saying is you can actually see nebula nebulae i guess the plural without using the scope just because you you can't see them normally because of the faintness or or just what and the color Uh, a lot of the there are a lot of really spectacular nebula some of them some of them are bluish and those you can see in a telescope they look good right dumbbell nebula the ring nebula Um, but then there are some that i've tried to look at in telescope like the north american nebula it's a big nebula and it's red and so even with the telescope, you, you, because you, when you're using your night vision, the, the, the rods are peaked to the green and they don't see red very well. Right. And so I've, I've never really had a good view of the North American nebula until I had the, until I got these night vision goggles, put on the H alpha filter and you look without a telescope and look up. There it is. And it's just obvious. And it looks like North America. It's really amazing. Really? So, yeah, it's really spectacular. And, wow. and some other ones, too, the lagoon and the trifid, they just pop out. And the, the lagoon is incredibly bright in H-alpha. It's, it's astonishing. The Eagle Nebula, which looks pathetic in a telescope even, but you put the <laughs> H-alpha filter on and it's glorious. Uh, it's really amazing. So it's, it's changed. It, it's, it's, it's pretty neat because things that I had not really seen before, I knew of them because I've seen these wonderful Hubble pictures and I've tried to look at them and Maybe you can see them a little bit. They just pop out with the H alpha filter with the, and the night vision goggles. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Now, now that that uh, that filter is that similar to because I have some filters that I use to look at nebula like when I look at Orion or something like that, and it does make mm-hmm. it glow a whole lot more. Is that the similar type of 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 concept? Yeah, the normally the ones that you would use if you just for naked eye viewing. Or for you know viewing through your telescope without night vision goggles, uh, the ones you'd probably get would be an H beta filter, which peaks in the green, and a um, oh another one, oxygen three. Oxygen, oxygen three, three. yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is, right? And, and those are great. Um, but uh, you wouldn't normally get an H alpha filter because that filters everything except a deep red that your your rods can barely see at all. But that it's a different. But for the night vision goggles, they they pick out <laughs> red very well, and so and infrared even they can see into the infrared a little bit. Wow. So. Uh, Normally, you wouldn't get an H-alpha filter just for eye viewing, but with the night vision goggles, it, it makes an enormous difference. Okay, it's really so, quite spectacular. So now you're talking about uh, infrared stuff. Um, 20, it's been about 20 years ago now that people started uh, using um, infrared to probe into the center of our galaxy mm-hmm. uh, because there's, there's too much dust uh, between mm-hmm. us and the center of the galaxy to really be able to see a whole lot in that area. Right. But uh, right. I, I guess infrared allows uh, you to get through that. And yep. so that's that's how they've done the, the tracking of stars to be able to verify the existence of uh, Sagittarius A star. T- tell us mm-hmm. a little something about what, what, what that's all about. 
Yeah, a, we, we suspected for a long time that there was a giant black hole in the middle of our own galaxy, but it wasn't until we started looking at the, the center of our galaxy. Sagittari- Sagittarius A is kind of the area that is the center of our galaxy, and A star is the exact location of this black hole. We've confirmed it now. And the amazing thing is we've actually been able to see stars orbit that black hole. Right. I think he's, he's, we've been able to track their motion for the last uh, decade or so. And uh, I, I even have a um, one of the programs I have on, on my computer. Uh, it, it actually has those stars in their proper orbits, and you can speed it up time lapse, and you can watch them orbit this black hole. It's astonishing. <laughs> and within the last few weeks, even they there was a new paper published where um, the one of the innermost stars that's orbiting around there, they've been able to detect precession, which is where the 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 um, you know or, orbits are elliptical and their farthest point from the star. Uh, if it, if, if um, Newton's laws were exactly right, that would never change. They would the 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 longest point in the orbit would stay in the same location, but because of Ein, the Einstein, the physics that Einstein discovered, orbits precess. The, the ellipse actually itself rotates, so the, the, it makes a spirograph pattern if, you, oh, if yeah. you watch it over time. And they've been able to confirm that within the last few weeks that this inner star has precessed. In, in accordance with the equations that Einstein discovered. So it's a remarkable confirmation of general relativity. And it's just interesting physics. Black holes are awesome. And uh, I, I have a whole chapter on them, or maybe two chapters on them in the, in the book that I wrote on the physics of Einstein, because they're just neat. And it's neat to see confirmation that we do have one in our own galaxy. We so, actually think that pretty much all galaxies have right. a giant black hole in their center. Yeah, so so don't you think going using the Men in Black universe? Don't you think Einstein was clearly an alien? I mean, because I mean he was so bright, uh, and yeah. he didn't have any of the stuff we've got today, and yet uh, we keep proving him right. So I mean, he clearly was from another galaxy, don't you think? <laughs> I would actually put. Uh, Newton in that bin because Newton, uh, of course, Newton didn't have the benefit. You know, he's centuries earlier, and he didn't have the benefit of the many uh, things that we know today. Right. But Newton discovered more things than any one person has any right to. Uh, any one of them would be Nobel Prize worthy today. I mean, he just he he discovers uh, the the nature, the formula for gravity. He discovers that planets orbit the sun because of gravity. Uh, the math didn't exist at the time, so he discovers the math calculus that allows him to demonstrate that. Uh, he discovers basically everything we know about optics. Newton uh, figured that out. Just, just an incredible mind. Einstein made one very brilliant creative leap, and that is that the that lengths and and the measure of time are not universal. That is, depending on how you're moving, you will you will experience time and lengths differently. From someone who's who's moving differently. Once you realize that, uh, and 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 you incorporate the fact that the speed of light, the round trip speed of light, is constant with any observer, the rest of relativity follows naturally from that. You can derive it all mathematically, and and I, I demonstrate in that in my book, The Physics of Einstein, I show that you know, algebraically you can you can derive all the rest of relativity just from those just from that one one uh, amazing visionary. Uh, so Einstein, he, he got one thing incredibly right, and it was it was ingenious. Uh, but it was it, but it was Newton that kind of made all these different discoveries. And you're like, right. how did he do that? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Well, sometimes, honestly, I wonder if back then, without the number of distractions, there's that. Uh, if that isn't a part of it, I mean, we just have so many things going on in our mind that. Yeah. They were able to focus 
uh, so much better than than we can today. I, I really wonder about that because I I see the same things in in theology. I, I you know you you look at people a couple hundred years ago and man they could think deep thoughts and follow mm-hmm. long processes of 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 thinking and it doesn't seem to be as common today. And I just wonder if it's all the stuff we have around us that has something to do with that. Now going back to the center of our galaxy for a moment. Um, I watched a, a uh, uh, you know documentary type thing about the discovery of all this stuff, and, and one of the one of the things you were just talking about the orbit of these stars, this massive black hole is able to take huge stars and whip them around at incredible velocities. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the the power is is difficult for our little minds to even begin to imagine. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome, and the uh, the 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 weird physics kicks in when when stars get really close to the black hole. If you're far away from a black hole, physics works kind of normal. It's right. things you know. You know, people have. I, I've asked this question to folks. I said, "What would happen if I took the the sun and compressed it into a, a black hole?" And people think all oh, the Earth would just get sucked into. It. No, the Earth would continue to orbit just as it does right now. There's, there's nothing weird about that. You can orbit around a black hole until you get really close. And then once you get really close to it, the physics gets a little bit wonky. Get, the, the physics differs from the expectations of uh, Newton's right. uh, physics. Newton's physics you can think of as an approximation that works very well if gravitational fields are relatively weak and if the speeds are relatively slow compared to the speed of light. But if speeds get close to the speed of light, or if the gravity gets very, very intense, as it does near a black hole, you can't rely on the physics of Newton. You have to use the, the better approximation, the physics that Einstein discovered. And you say, well, why, why even keep the physics of Newton? Because it's much easier. <laughs> and so if, if, much, much easier. And so if, if you can get away with using the Newton, the Newton approximation, you should, because it's, it's far easier to, to, to work the math that way. I, the physics of Einstein gets into some very difficult mathematics. So, okay, I wasn't going to ask this, but... But what did you think about the movie? Um, oh, good grief! It just flew out of my mind uh, a couple years ago with the black hole. Um, um, Interstellar. Yes, Interstellar. Yes. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed it. I, the ending I thought was wonky. I didn't like the ending, um, but the the rest of it was intriguing and it was one of the most realistic depictions of a wormhole i've ever seen and that's because they consulted kip thorne who is one of the world's you know phd in physics oh. expert on black holes and wormholes they consulted him to uh to get that right they, i mean they took some license but you, you expect that i mean right. I, if i can enjoy star trek i i can appreciate <laughs> taking license from, right. from science that's right but um the the black the planet that they landed on that's very close to a black hole and therefore experienced extreme time dilation that was really neat the the amount was off time, gravitational time dilation is very is normally very very small and um and the energy required to leave a gravitational well where the where the um time is that slow it's not realistic but nonetheless it was it was a really cool concept um, and it's true in principle that when you you know something orbiting close to a black hole time slows down and wow. you don't realize it because everything slows down together your brain slows down your watch slows down and so it looks normal but then when you come back out you realize the rest of the universe has aged 20 years and what has been you know a month or or so for you and that's that's real physics and we can demonstrate that that happens uh, we've been able to measure it using atomic clock. We can't get very high speeds or very intense gravitational fields. But even in the weak gravitational field of Earth, we can measure gravitational time dilation using atomic clocks. And it's true. 
And yeah. it's exactly what Einstein predicted. So it was it was a fun it was a fun movie. And uh, the ending was a little strange, but <laughs> other than that, it was it was pretty good. Well, you're actually you're actually right near one of the main atomic clocks. Um, yeah, uh, there. In- it used to be much closer because it's actually up in Boulder is where they they have. Uh, the atomic clock, one of the atomic clocks that, that is that right. is used, right? And the uh, transmitters in Fort Collins. I and I still have I have a clock over here that I use that gets the signal from the Fort Collins, right? The, the radio transmission from Fort Collins resets itself to the atomic clock every night, so I never have to set it. It's exactly right. That's kind of neat. It is. And it is for uh, astronomy. I, I remember. Hey, I you, you you'll be proud of me, but I was oh goodness. I think I was a teenager, maybe, when my dad told me about that stuff, and I, uh, you could string up uh, an antenna, and and you could actually listen to that thing. And, I mean, mm-hmm. it's as boring as all get out, but um, uh, you could you could listen to that tick tick tick, and then burr, and and you you get your ex- exact uh, time settings from uh, from stuff like that. So that was long before any of the watches and all the rest of the stuff that you've got today that you can do all that fun stuff. Yeah, with. even when I was in grad school, they didn't have I don't think they had the clocks or if they if they were they were they were rare. Yeah. But it was a local phone call, so you could you could call it. It's kind of neat. And listen to the the signal there and set your watch by it. So it's kind of neat. <laughs> and I'm sure there were a bunch of you guys uh, there in Boulder, uh, who were complete nerds and geeks that were calling that number fairly regularly to make sure that your watches were spot on. That's right. We yeah. we know we know who you all were. We we suffered through your blowing the curve on every test uh, and everything else. That's yeah. We been there, done that. Got the t-shirt. So anyway, uh, so we've we've talked a little bit about um, you, you know there's continuing discoveries. Let let's talk a little bit about. Uh, you read, you know, I, I subscribe to space.com and stuff like that. And so you'll get all these articles and things like that. But obviously so much of this, it, the vast majority, almost all of it, I guess, is pretty much written from a secular perspective now. So give us some, give us some insight. How do we enjoy all this information? I mean, there's supposed to be the new the new telescope that's supposed to be sort of taking the place of Hubble. I mean, they're not retiring Hubble, but there's supposed to be a new telescope that's going to be launched. Um, the James Webb. Yep. Yeah, and and it actually uses. I mean, because Hubble's like 1980s technology. I, I mean, mm-hmm. we've been we've you got to give NASA uh, props. They'll take really 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 old tech and make it work forever. Yeah. Um, yeah, Hubble's powered by a 486 computer processor. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But they, the, the neat thing about Hubble is it's got four, it has four instruments in it simultaneously, and they can be swapped out. So it's not using the same instrumentation that right. it once used. The computer, yes, but the, the instrumentation that it's using, it can, it's, it's upgradable. And that was a really clever idea. Now, with James Webb, it's not upgradable. So it'll, it'll go obsolete sooner. Oh, really? Well, why would they yeah. do that? Well, because it's not in Earth orbit. They're putting it out in a deeper orbit, oh. so it won't be easily accessible. But oh. Hubble's in Earth orbit, so we can get to it right. easily. Yeah. Right. When was the last, was it like 2009 was the last time uh, we visited Hubble or something like Probably that? Probably was, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was. Back yeah. when the shuttles were still. Right, yeah. Yeah, so I guess if you're not going to have shuttles, it's not does, doesn't really matter if it's uh, replaceable. But at least mm-hmm. it will be 2020 tech uh, yeah. that, we're, that we're sending out there rather than... Uh, anything else and and of course all those things have been great but uh, point being you know nasa does a great job 
But when you subscribe to all these websites and stuff like that, everything you're getting is going to be thrown at you from a secular perspective. How do you how can you help us filter some of that stuff out? That kind of is that really kind of is the main purpose of the Biblical Science Institute. So that's where I consider us to be a discernment ministry. We want to sh- we want to show people, we want to educate people. How do you distinguish uh, fact from fiction? Um, there's some real sort of guidelines that I think are very helpful. First of all, when it comes to uh, what is how the universe currently operates, I think that there there's very little difference between uh, creationists and evolutionists, secular astronomers versus Christian astronomers like myself, in terms of how the universe works today. Very little difference. I, I, I believe that the sun is powered by nuclear fusion in the core. There's good evidence for this. And, and the reason we would agree on that is because it's testable and repeatable in the present. It involves operational science. We can check it. If, if you disagree about how the sun is powered, we can check it. We, we can detect neutrinos coming from the core of the sun. We know, it, we, and those are produced by nuclear fusion. So we know fusion is going on in there. The, the place you need to really watch out is when people talk about what happened in the past. Right. That's where we differ because we have different, we have a different worldview about how the universe came about and how it's maintained today. I believe it's maintained by the power of God. God controls what happens in this universe. And, uh, and I believe it, the universe was spoken into existence. And so somebody who believes that the universe came about by natural causes is going to have very different stories about the past in terms of how things came about. So, so watch out for things like age estimates where they'll say, well, you know, this, here, you know, this is a young star. Well, actually, they're all, they're all young. They're, you know, and, and, or a stellar, here's a stellar nursery where there are new stars being formed. Or they don't see new stars being formed today. Nobody, nobody's seen that. But it's because of their belief in the billions of years and they find all these blue stars. Blue stars can't last millions of years. That's universally agreed upon because they're incredibly hot. They they expend their energy quickly. And so they, the, my secular colleagues, when they see blue stars, they assume they must have formed recently. So that must be a star-forming region. That's where they get that information. It's not that they've actually seen any stars form. So you just have to kind of watch and think through what are the assumptions that are involved in this. So basically, if it's a story about the past, you should be very skeptical but if it's about how the universe is operating at the present, we would generally agree with that uh, because it's testable and repeatable. But then projections into the future would suffer from the same presuppositional issues as well. Yeah, they would. Yeah. And of course, it depends on, you know, for the Christian, uh, in what way is the Lord going to make the new heavens and the new earth? Is it is it a, you know, is there is there continuity? I think there's continuity between the current president the, the current heavens and earth and the new heavens and the earth, just as there's going to be con- continuity between my current body and my glorified body. That's why we bury our dead. We expect them to be resurrected, but they're, res- they're not exactly the same when they're resurrected. So um, it, will, will we have the same constellations in the new heavens and the new earth? Uh, well, maybe, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't know. We don't, we don't really know at this point, but uh, obviously, yes, uh, we believe that there's going to be in the future a judgment and a restoration, a new heavens and a new earth. And so and our secular colleagues, they don't believe that. So in their view, the universe will continue for billions of years until it runs out of use, usable energy and dies what they call a heat death. Everything's given up its heat and heat's the only energy that's around and it heat's not usable. Once it gets below a certain level, you can't use it anymore. So it's a very dismal view of the future. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't contract. I like our version better. Uh, it doesn't contract back and blow up again. No, there was a, the, the older versions of the Big Bang allowed for three possible fates, and one of them was a, a, a recollapse. But nobody believes that anymore. Uh, there's not there's not sufficient gravity to prevent the universe from expanding forever. We've been able to measure that now. 
So, um, in, in the in the, if in, unless the Lord were to intervene, the universe would continue to expand forever and run out of you know, uh, run out of usable energy. So, there, there's no good ending. If, if you're a secularist, there's no good ending. <laughs> that's depressing. Uh, for this universe. That, yeah. That's pretty depressing. Even Star Trek can't solve that, huh? No. Nope. <laughs> In fact, I, I, I remember one uh, Next Generation episode where the uh, environmentalists got involved and uh, uh, using warp drive was ruining the fabric of space or something like that. Yeah. Remember, remember that one? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what would they have to do? Put speed limit signs up or something? I forget. forget exactly. Yeah, well, actually, temp- that's what they did temporarily. They limited the warp speed to warp five. They right. minimize the damage. And then uh, by the time Voyager rolled around, they had fixed, they had solved that problem. They developed a new kind of warp drive that doesn't damage the fabric of space time. Oh, so. sure they did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it runs and it runs on a different kind of Freon, too, I'm sure. Uh, oh, but wait, uh, wait. No, no more dilithium crystals. On there. Who knows? But uh, anyway, that's the fun of writing fiction and, and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, so, uh, yeah, obviously um, that raises the issue of presuppositions and what what came first for you uh the recognition because of your studies in science of the centrality of presuppositions or was it theologically recognizing that and then applying it outward to the scientific field i mean for for you what uh what caused you to recognize the importance of looking at things presuppositionally uh, initially. I, I think uh, the science paved the way, but I didn't, bec- I didn't become a consistent presuppositionalist until recognizing that theologically that, that made sense. And uh, I, I owe uh, Dr. Greg Bonson and his works for um, coming to that understanding. Uh, I, I really, I mean, I, I was calling myself presuppositional because I, I, I knew that there was no greater standard than God's word, but I didn't really know, well, how then do you go about demonstrating the truth of God's word? Uh, I think certainly science helped because, and, and also it helps too, because I double majored. I, my my um, uh, undergraduate degree was in physics and astronomy as, as separate majors. And in physics, there's very little disagreement between uh, Christian physicists and secular physicists. There's very little difference of opinion because it's all operational science. In astronomy, there's differences because astronomy, a lot of it is involves reconstructing past events. And so I, I, get, I had two different branches of, of science, one of which uh, the presuppositions everyone agreed on and the other which there, there were different presuppositions. And I think that helped, I think that helped me to understand the importance of presuppositions in, in our um, thinking about the universe. But it was really, um, I really became a solid presuppositionalist, uh, thanks to Greg Bonson and his works. When I listened to the Bonson-Stein debate, yes, that really struck me, because when I, when I, when I would, whenever I would hear Greg Bonson say something, it was exactly right. It was, it was intellectual, it was scholarly. It wasn't just, you know, well, you know, just me and my Bible. It was scholarly. It was, he put some thought into it, and it was scriptural. It was thoroughly biblical, and that impressed me. Well, I remember listening to that debate and thinking, this man argues the way Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And I want to learn to do that. Hmm. And I learned, and so I listened to that debate to the point where I could probably quote it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, and it really helped. And then I, I got all of other, Bonson's other apologetics material and each one is a gem. I highly recommend Greg Bonson's uh, apologetic material. And what I've tried to do is uh, now Bonson was, he was a biblical creationist like myself. He was a six day creationist. And uh, 
but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a scientist. And so uh, what I tried to do is take uh, that methodology, the presuppositional methodology, and really push it in, in creation circles, because most creation scientists are not presuppositional. And that's a shame, because right. people think that, well, you're, you're giving up use of evidence. No, you're not. In fact, you're, in, you're increasing the value of that evidence, right. because if, you're, if, you, if you really understand presuppositional thinking, all evidence is evidence of the biblical God. As, as spelled out in Scripture. So it was really it, Bonson and the theological implications of it, the fact that it just, it, it, it's so biblical, and the recognition that you can't, you can't give secular man and say, yes, you're the judge, and your mind is more than sufficient to judge God's Word, because that's a lie. It's not true. God's Word is the ultimate standard by which your mind will be judged, and people don't like that, but that's tough. That's the way the universe is. So uh, when did you first hear the Bonson-Stein debate? I had already started at Answers in Genesis uh, working there. So it had been 2004, 2005, around there. Oh, okay. And I very quickly, very, I very quickly got a hold of the rest of his materials, and I wrote The Ultimate Proof of Creation, that book, which is an introduction to presuppositional apologetics. Uh, hopefully, it, it, that book was designed to introduce presuppositional apologetics into the world of creation scientists, basically. Well, I think it is uh, has had that uh, has had that impact. I am encountering Good. more and more people uh, who are focused, especially in the creation area, that are recognizing that. Of course, I would argue the only way to be consistently presuppositional is to be reformed. Um, but that's a whole other issue. As far as uh, there's a lot of folks in that in that field that wouldn't uh, wouldn't want to go that far. But I think you're sneaking something in there in the process. But but be it as it may, so 2004, so that was nine years after, uh, after Greg passed away. And yeah. so um, then do you, do you want me to, like, uh, sign an autograph or something for you for the fact that, that I actually knew him and, uh, and stuff like that? Uh, does that make you – are you impressed? Uh, I'm trying to find <laughs> I, anything. I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm trying to find I, anything. I, I, I regret that even though our lives overlapped, I never had a chance to meet him or yeah. even knew about him until after he'd passed away. And right. I, I really admire the man. I, he, he was a gem. And he wasn't just a brilliant scholar, but he, boy, he sure had a heart. He, he had a heart for Jesus. He loved, you could tell he loved people and he wanted to be winsome in the way that he presented things. And I, I really I try to emulate that as much as I can. I think right. that's, Bonson was very Christ-like, and I admire that in, uh, in any Christian, but especially in a Christian scholar. That's just neat. And a friend of mine actually gave me a, a book uh, on one of uh, Bonson's books where he had signed it. So I have his autograph. That's, there you go. That's as close as I can get at this point. But he's, <laughs> he's going to get a big hug from me in, in heaven. <laughs> so obviously you've listened to his final sermon. Yes, I have. Yes. Oh, what a gem. Isn't that amazing? To, to live as Christ and to die as gain. What yeah. a gem. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, he knew, um, he had been told, this was, this was going to be his third open heart surgery. Yeah. And, and he had been told, uh, you know, uh, and diabetes was the underlying issue with all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's just a terrible disease. And and um, he had been told, but most people don't survive the, the third time. And so he basically got to preach his own sermon, his own funeral yeah. sermon, which was yeah. uh, that's a that's a tremendous privilege, really, when you think about it, uh, to get to preach your own. So, folks, if you haven't listened to Greg Bonson's uh, final sermon, it's available online. It's easy to find Google. Um, I, of course, listened to it on a cassette tape uh, initially. Uh, be, so that would have been like in January, February of 1996. He died in December of, of 95. 
And within six months of Gordon Stein, which is also very, very, very interesting when you think about it. Um, but have you ever heard his debates uh, with uh, the two debates he did with homosexuals? Because he wrote on homosexuality, too. Yes, uh, I, I think I have, but it's been a while. I think I've listened to all his debates. Wow. Okay. So yeah. the reason I mention that is I had a teeny, teeny, tiny little part in that happening because he had been scheduled to go to Omaha, Nebraska to debate uh, Jerry Matatix, formerly of Catholic Answers. He was sort of on his own by that particular point in time. I think this was uh, 94. Um, and so he was supposed to be debate, debating uh, Jerry. And then the opportunity to do the debates on homosexuality came up. And so he called me and asked me to take his place and do the debates up in Omaha, which I did with, with Jerry Matatix. I don't think Jerry was happy about that, but um, I, did, uh, I did get a chance to do that, and that's what freed him up to do the debates on homosexuality. So uh, there, was, there was a little something, a little, little bit there. It wasn't like we called each other up and, and uh, were buds and stuff like that. But I, let me put it this way. If I'm going to call someone to take my place in a debate... I've got to figure like they're we're pretty much on the same page. Uh, yeah. If I'm you know, if I'm going to trust them to do something like that, so uh, so yeah, we did have that connection. And uh, his uh, dad uh, was in the Phoenix area and was involved with. Uh, I was involved with preaching an ordination sermon for a dear friend that his father was involved with. So we, yeah, we had some connections. And a lot of people don't know the debate that I did with Patrick Madrid on Sola Scriptura in San Diego was at Bonson's former, was at Bonson's church. Oh, yeah. um, and that was actually before his death. So I think he just wasn't, mm. I think he was out of town at that point. But that's, yeah, and they did not have air conditioning and it was very hot. So mm. I just uh, thought I'd mention that while you're passing. But anyways, so yes, um, uh, you, you've, uh, the, the book, uh, let, let me make sure people know the, the book that you're referring to. They can get it from, uh, from you. They can get it from uh, Amazon. Uh, what? Yeah, uh, I, it, help us out if you get it on our website, biblicalscienceinstitute.com. But you can get it from Amazon as well. It's fine. And the book, The Ultimate Proof of Creation, that's the one that I wrote that that uh, tries to bring the Bonson stuff uh, down even a step further. People say, you know, Bonson brings down Van Til, and I've tried to bring down Bonson a little right, bit. Right, right, right. Everybody can understand it. So. Right, right. And obviously, when people see the title of that book, they're not thinking primarily apologetics, though. They're, they're thinking they're going to be getting something about the age of the earth or something like that. And it touches on that. But, uh, yeah, it's, and it's, it, that's, that's the point, though. I want, I want to draw people in. That here, here, it, it, I think the title's true. It, it delivers on what it promises, but it does it in a way that most people won't expect. Right, because they're expecting some nuanced scientific argument. That's not what you're going to get. You're going to, you're going to find that unless the biblical worldview is true, science would not make, even make sense as a procedure. It wouldn't make sense to trust in the scientific method if the Bible were not true in what it teaches. And that's a different kind of an argument. Boy, is it powerful, and I've never had anybody be able to come back from it. Right, right. So, now, um, I've told the story before, and we, I've told about it uh, when we've had you on before, but um, we were speaking together uh, with Emilio Ramos in uh, Dallas, at um, a conference there, and you said, hey, you know, uh, on Saturday we get done at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 
how would you like to go stargazing? Now, I had never done that. I had wanted to. I had looked at telescopes. I had an interest in these things. I had a science background, science major, but it was biology primarily. But I was still interested in those things. Um, and anybody who does a grad, a, a degree in physics is just really weird. Let me just mention that in passing. Um, but, uh, so we, we went out, uh, you set up your 16 inch Dobsonian, uh, out there in, uh, in, well, actually it was right next to a road, which, mm-hmm. uh, was the best we could do, I suppose. But there were a few times, in fact, didn't the, didn't the cop go come by once? Am I, am I remembering that correctly? Uh, yeah, one, he said we could set up there, but I couldn't park my car where it was. So that's, it. Right, yeah. that's, yeah. that's right. That's <laughs> right. Anyway, uh, so we we uh, we went out there, and you know it had been a long day. We were a little tired, and I've noticed that you have a hierarchy of celestial stuff to show people. You mm-hmm. know, you know what's up there, and you put it in order, so you don't start with all the cool stuff up front necessarily. Mm-hmm. And then people get bored as they go along. You wait till till you know to throw them some good stuff. And you were doing that in Colorado last year because I had focused in on Saturn before you did. You were holding that one <laughs> off uh, to a little bit later right. on. So oh, you got to save Saturn. Is it, there's nothing better than that. <laughs> oh no, there no there isn't. It's uh, it, it's it's glorious. Uh, uh, I I think Jupiter and its moons are pretty cool. And, and of course, when you did show us Saturn, you start whipping off all the names of the moons and all the rest of this stuff. I had no idea about a lot of that stuff. I've done a lot of reading on it since then, and th- th- some of the some of just the moons of the gas giants are fascinating in, in and of themselves. They really, really mm-hmm. are. Um, but um, one of the last things you did now, now you had mentioned um, being able to see galaxies, and mm-hmm. so I had asked, you know, I'm, I'd really like to see a galaxy, you know, and so you you moved over to the Andromeda Galaxy. And that's the first time I'd seen anything uh, like that. And so I'm like, okay, now that's pretty cool. And the interesting thing is, uh, and I bet you this, can you see that clearly with the, uh, with the night vision goggles? Oh, yeah. I bet. No be- I, because I, I finally saw it without a scope or binoculars with, the, with my, with my not-so-good eyes mm-hmm. up there in Flagstaff at 8,000 feet in total darkness. And then mm-hmm. it was like, how can I miss that? I mean, it's right there. It's uh, the farthest thing that is detectable to the unaided human eye. Is the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. So all the other galaxies would not be visible. Right. There's two in the southern hemisphere, the Magellanic clouds, that are visible to the unaided eye, but they are closer than Andromeda. So it's the, it's the most distant object visible to the unaided eye. Okay. All right. Well, and so, so it must be pretty pretty bright to be that far away and yet we're able to uh, able to see it with the un- unaided eye in, in total darkness so i was pretty amazed by that and then of course you did saturn and yeah that's beautiful and all the rest of that stuff but that's not what got me none of that was what got me uh do you remember what got me alberio alberio yeah. which is one i think it was one of the very last things that 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 you showed us Mm-hmm. was Alberio, and when I walked up to that scope, and if people don't know, a 16-inch Dobsonian is, how long is that thing? Is it about, what, about? Uh, about six feet. I yeah. Guess. And it's, a four, it's actually a 14-inch. Oh, 14. 14. Oh, I thought it was 16-inch. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. I was giving you a little, just giving you a little extra there, you know, pumping up the stats or whatever. <laughs> so uh, they, There is a 16-inch version, but the base plate goes from 
60 pounds to 90 pounds, it gets, it gets oh, yeah. really heavy. Well, really I, and, I was, and I was stunned. Your car is not big. I don't know how you got all that in there. I but mean, it's a Camry. It's got a big trunk. So uh, that, that still, yeah. I was I was just amazed at, at at how you were able to pack that all in there. I'm, I'm sure you mm-hmm. have a computer program that you designed and wrote yourself that told you how to do that. But <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I walk up to that thing and I can still remember. Uh, I I look through the eyepiece and here is. Uh, this glorious gold star, and right next to it, this glorious blue star, mm-hmm. and it, it 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 did. I don't know that it struck me that night, but it has certainly struck me since then. Um, I've I've looked at a lot of doubles through my scopes. I've never seen a double that can compare to Alberio. I just can't. the The color contrast is stunningly striking. It really mm-hmm. is. Um, and then the thought that crossed my mind always is, who was the first person to realize that that was a double star? Because you can't resolve it with the naked eye. Right. So, so all of the great men of the past had looked up, and if they had seen Alberto, which is not the brightest star in the sky, um, if they had seen it, they thought they were simply looking at a single star, not realizing that they were, in fact, looking at a beautiful double. And, in fact, it may be more than that. Um, so mm-hmm. so uh, my reading has told me it's about 450 million light years away. Is that approximately? No, no, no. 415 light years. Okay, 415 light years. That's right, not million, yeah. but it's 415 light years. Um, so it's sort of in our neighborhood, I guess you would, mm-hmm. you would say. Um, but one of the things that you said that night that I remembered was we're not sure it's a true binary. Mm-hmm. So what, what is, what is, uh, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's a, it's a double star. Anything is a double star. If you see two stars close together, it's a double star. Uh, but the question is, do those stars orbit around each other? Right. Are they a binary? And, uh, it's, that's been a, an ongoing debate for the last 20 years possibly settled just this past year um we think it's probably not a true binary it's a little disappointing to me but oh anyway, it is to me case, too yeah but uh it's now my fa- so it's now my favorite double star but it's, it's no longer my favorite binary because it's not a binary um that that honor now goes to almac which is the winter version of alberio it's not quite as good as alberio but it's it's pretty nice almac. It is. but um anyway yeah so in in how do you determine that? Well, one thing is the two stars. If it's a true, if it's true binary, the two stars will be at about the same distance. Uh, in a lot of optical doubles, one star is much closer to you than the other. They just happen to be lined up, and so if you get two different distance estimates, you know they're just two stars that are by coincidence are close together in that part of the sky as viewed from Earth from a different location. They'd look far apart. Uh, now it turns out these two stars are at about the same distance, so they could they could be a binary. Uh, the uh, Hipparchus mission, which measured distances and locations of stars, uh, uh, measured the blue star to be slightly closer to us, but it was within the error bars of the two measurements. They could they could have been binary. Mm-hmm. Uh, more lately, we ha- we've had the Gaia mission, which is uh, another mission to measure the positions and distances of stars very precisely. And Gaia also puts the blue star a little bit closer than the gold one, uh, but again, within the error bars. But the thing that 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 makes it um, pretty clear that it's not a true binary 
is the proper motions of these stars. Proper motion refers to the motion of a star along the, the sky from our, from our perspective on Earth, as opposed to a radial motion toward or away from the Earth. Mm. And the Gaia mission measures that. And if the measurements are right, these two stars are moving in very different directions to mm. the point that it would be greater than their, far greater than their escape velocity, which means they're not gravitationally bound. So if that data is right, Alvira is not a true binary. In terms of the blue and the gold, they're, they're, right. they're, they're not gravitationally bound to each other. However, the gold star is itself a binary, and there's no doubt about that. It's orbited by at least one and possibly two stars that are very close. Uh, you, can't, you can't split them in a backyard telescope, but professional observatories have been able to detect a very close companion to Alberio A, so the Alberio A, 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 or A, A, Alberio AB is what it would be, mm-hmm. and Alberio AC. So the gold star is th- it lists three stars, and the blue one is just one that ha- it's it's photobombing the the group. It just happens to be in the way. It's photobombing. <laughs> yeah. So, so well, but so how how long do we have to look at Alberio before it uh, separates and 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 you can tell it's two different stars? Uh, you're not gonna have to worry about it. Let's put it that way. It's gonna be. Uh, yeah, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Are you saying I specifically don't have to worry about it, but Anyone my kids listening to might? This, to this podcast is not going to have to worry about it. You're going to have Alberio for your lifetime. Uh, even if they extend our life by a factor of 10 through some kind of achievement, you're still going to have Alberio. It's, it, the, the motion is very, very small. It's not noticeable within many human lifetimes. Okay. All right. You had me worried there for a second because uh, the first thing I did when I got back from Dallas is I... I, I decided, okay, I'm not going to get some big fancy thing that I don't end up using. Um, telescopes are not all that expensive, amazingly. Yeah, I mean, ones that really. are, act, can actually work well. So I got a little six-inch uh, Dobsonian, and I'm like, okay, you know, let's, let's, let's make sure we're going to use this. And the first thing I did was, with it was searching for Alberio. And I remember mm-hmm. the first time that thing showed up, I'm like, yes. Um, mm-hmm. There, there it is. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't uh, dreaming it uh, out there. And so, I would highly recommend anyone who is who is going to be getting into all this. Um, that's something you're going to want to be looking at uh, early on, uh, showing the kids. I, I know I showed my grandkids uh, that um, up in in Vegas, but now they live here in Phoenix, and so I I need to drag them out to a nice dark spot and uh, and give them another sky tour because that's a, that's a whole lot of fun. Now I think I might have something that you don't. I have a solar scope. Do you have a solar scope? Uh, not a good one. No, I not don't. a good one. No, I'm not sure how you would define good one. Well, um, I have I have solar filters that I, I that I can put on my binoculars and they work superbly. Um, yeah, I don't really have a good solar scope. That when I was at the University of Colorado in Boulder, we had a wonderful, wonderful solar scope up there that I would use all the time, and it was just a blast. It was, I mean, it was really well designed. It had a spectroscope built into it, and and you could look at the sun in multiple wavelengths. Right. It was a gem. And at some point, I want to build. I want to build my own. Uh, <laughs> of course, that was, that of was course, neat. yeah, of course. It's it, that's Jason Lyle. He's going to build his own. But yeah, um, no, yeah. mine's one of the you know the standard ones with it's built specifically just to look at the at, at the sun, and you can okay. see the surface stuff like that. Of course, I bought it right as the minimum started, so yeah, I really yeah. <laughs> haven't gotten much to see um, because this has been a really deep minimum. Uh, it has. It's yeah. been amazing, and my understanding is the depth of this minimum has impacted satellites and. All sorts of stuff uh, uh, on Earth. Now, 
the son is your baby because if I'm my my memory's serving me correctly, that was what your dissertation was in. Am I correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Solar photosphere. Motions on the solar photosphere. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about when I, when I, when you and I are talking about a minimum. What what are we talking about? Yeah. So the sun goes through a twenty two year cycle where the magnetic field flips every 11 years, and then it flips back. So the whole cycle is 22 years. And uh, the sunspots correlate with that. Sunspots, uh, during a certain point in that cycle, you have a lot of sunspots on the sun. And then at the other point in the cycle, you have very, very few, if any. And uh, so so every 11 years, you get a boost in sunspots. And uh, that's part of that magnetic reversal. The sunspots themselves, sunspots are controlled by magnetism. If you're wondering what the connection is there, the sun, the sun's magnetic field is really interesting. It's it's different from Earth's. Earth's we have the north and south pole. You have a simple, what's called a dipole magnetic field, north pole, south pole. The sun has that, and it has a what's what we call a um, poloidal, or t- pardon me, a toroidal field where it, it wraps around east west. Hmm. And they're like two belts, one in the northern hemisphere, one in the southern hemisphere, at least at least two belts. And the sunspots always occur at almost always occur at the latitudes of those two uh, magnetic belts. And so you'll notice when you look at images of the sun, the sunspots are not randomly distributed across the surface. They form two rows, one in the northern hemisphere, one in the southern hemisphere. Hmm. And that's where those two magnetic belts are. Uh, A little piece of magnetism will pop up from the from that belt into the surface and and mag- the two sunspots will form usually sunspots usually form in east west pairs and they have opposite magnetic fields because the magnetic fields going up one and down the other so these little hail pairs really kind of amazing and those and those those belts move over the course of 11 years they move toward the equator and then they kind of cancel out when they get around the equator and then you have very few sunspots and the field flips then and then you start a new cycle, a new belt forms at high latitudes, and then they, and it's every 11 years, like clockwork. Wow. But some years are better than others. Yeah. Some years, you get a solar maximum, you have lots of sunspots. Other years, you have a solar maximum, you have relatively few. And there was a period of time, I believe in the um, late 1600s, early 1700s, somewhere around there, where you had the, the Maunder minimum, where you had very few sunspots. And it correlated with cooler temperatures yeah, as yeah. measured in Europe. And so sunspots do have an effect on Earth weather, far, far more than anything human beings have done, <laughs> yes, by the way. I, yeah, far more. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm well aware of that. We can spend, we can, we can print all the funny money in the world, and it won't have as much effect as the, uh, as the solar, as that big burning yeah. fusion engine in the sky uh, yeah. is, is going to have. No, no two ways about it. Um, yeah, that is the the sun is fascinating. Um, it, it is it is neat to live in a day where we get to know things that have just simply never been known before. I mean, anything you're talking about right now regarding uh, the sun's surface and uh, the the period of of sunspots and and the minimums and and the, the whole nine yards. This has only been known for literally a, a, a relatively few number of decades. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. there's still stuff, obviously, that we have not thought through. In fact, this is one thing that scares me, and I, I bet you you observe this all the time. Scientists, science now is such a diverse field as far as you can go so in-depth into genetics or into you know into the various biological realms or into 
uh, earth physics and, and, and everything else that anybody, almost anybody has a PhD has a, has a PhD in an extremely narrow field. Yeah. And that almost functions to make sure that they can't have a broad education that connects them with everything with the other fields of, of human study. And the, yes. res- the result is can be very scary, can be frightening. It really can yeah, be. Yeah, it, it really is. That's, and that is a, that's a very significant issue today. And, and I, I, first of all, I feel blessed to live in the time that I live in where we have all this information. It's wonderful. And, and it's easily accessible now because of the Internet and things like that. It's wonderful. I love it. But um, one of the problems is when you specialize, because, because so much is known, you can only be an expert in a very narrow uh, field, field of study. And, and that's something, by the way, I recommend to Christians who maybe you don't have, maybe you don't have a lot of education in science. And don't be intimidated by somebody who has a PhD in a particular field. I'm sure he knows that very nuanced field very well, but that doesn't make him an expert on everything else in science. It mm-hmm. really doesn't. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, don't, don't be intimidated. Uh, that being said, I, I, I have a lot of friends in different fields of science uh, from the different places I've worked, from working at Answers in Genesis and so on. So I know, I know PhDs in biology and PhDs in geology and so on. And I, and I try to maintain a, at least a base level of knowledge in these other fields. And I think that's important for us to have an accurate view of the universe. It, it's, it's good to know different experts in different fields. And, and the ones that I give the highest weight to are Christians. And so I know they have a right a proper worldview, but you'd be surprised how many experts in their field, they just, they know nothing about other fields yep. and you know, they'll talk about evolution. They, maybe they don't know anything about biology, but they're convinced that Darwinian evolution is true. And well, how do you know that? Well, they don't know. They don't know it. They're, rely, they're assuming that it's been proved by all the other scientists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's a real, it's a real issue these days. And I've, I've uh, talked with enough secularists that I know that's true. They're, they're trusting in the consensus, not in data. Well, and it's not just in in astrophysics or anything else. Yeah. Uh, in in the field of theology, uh, you're taught something in seminary, and again, there's a lot of topics that you can get into. And so, for example, the issue of the canon of Scripture, the vast majority of New Testament scholars have not spent a great deal of time studying issues such as canonization. But people will always say, well, 95% of New Testament scholars believe such and so. And it's like, if you're in the field, you go, yeah, but 98% of them have never read more than two articles on the subject. So what does any of that mean? And all this consensus stuff really breaks down as soon as you just start pushing on it at all. Uh, And I think that's the case in pretty much every field. Uh, It's the same, same type of thing. Yeah. So hey. I, I remember sitting in, in an undergraduate class in geology, and they were discussing. I can't remember if I've told you this or not, but they, we were they were discussing um, uh, the age of uh, the Earth and everything. And of course, they don't determine the age of the Earth from Earth rocks; they determine it from meteorites. And you think, well, why is that? Well, because of the underlying assumption that the solar system formed at a certain time. And well, how do we know that's accurate? And well, and, and the answer that my geology professor gave was, well, the astronomers, are, they, they demonstrated that the solar system is 4.5 billion years old. Fast forward a few years later, I'm in grad school, and we're talking about the radiometric dating and the dating of the sun. And how do we know that the sun's really this, that old? And they say, well, the geologists have demonstrated the Earth's that old and so on. Each was relying on the other right. for their evidence. And I thought, that's really telling because they're obviously not communicating. No. Uh, it's an issue. No, it is. It, it, it's a major issue. And as you said, uh, 
you started Biblical Science Institute to try to help um, get all of us uh, up to speed um, so people can look up Biblical Science Institute uh, online and they can uh, subscribe. You have, a, I believe you have a, 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 is it a monthly newsletter? Yeah, monthly newsletter. If they go to the bottom of our website, bottom right, there's a sign up form there. Easy peasy. It's free. Right, right. And um, so they, uh, they can uh, support you and your work there at uh, Biblical Science Institute. And I would encourage people to do that. I do that uh, because I think it's very, very important. And uh, um, I, uh, I, have, I can honestly say I have met few people in my years of ministry that um, I think um, exemplify taking a tremendous amount of knowledge and yet not getting stuck on yourself. Uh, so, so that's a, that's a high compliment, uh, uh, Brother Lyle. It truly is. And uh, a Thank lot you. of us deeply appreciate uh, all that you've done uh, for the kingdom and for us in uh, uh, discussing these things. And uh, I, of course, appreciate the fact that uh, we've, we've gone stargazing a few times, and I'm really, really hoping that we get to do it again uh, come, uh, come July, August, somewhere in there. Of course, knowing, knowing my, I don't believe in luck, but I'll use the colloquial phrase, knowing my luck, uh, that'll be right during the monsoon period, and we'll, we'll end up uh, drowned like rats. Uh, because Actually, the we, last time that we did that, it, 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 I, when I was, as I was driving up to, to where we were going to meet, yeah. It was hailing, and but the, by the time I got to you, it was totally clear. I know, and I, I think know. there was even a sunbeam right on you. At the, at the <laughs> that's just the reflect. That's the reflection off my head. Actually, it's oh, uh, it's it's see, a it's a bad <laughs> problem that I have wherever I am. But uh, yeah, no, uh, we were in Evergreen. That was a that was a that yeah. was a great time, and uh, so I appreciate your carving out now, and I appreciate being being the astronomer that you are. That you actually got up. At this time of the day, this that big <laughs> that big bright thing is still up in the sky. So we we know yeah. how you you astronomers work. Uh, not exactly the early early morning types, but uh, that's true. Uh, but thank you for uh, sharing with us and edifying us, and we will continue to pray for you. Continue to pray for us, and uh, I look forward, Lord willing, to seeing you uh, in just a few months uh, up there in Colorado. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on the program. I appreciate it. All right. God bless. Thank you, Jason. Sure. Yeah. Right, bye bye. Bye. All right. Uh, always enjoy having uh, Jason on the program. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, we get along real well, as you can tell. Uh, and uh, I, I didn't bring up the picture, but I got a picture of he and I next to our, uh, our telescopes up in, uh, up in Colorado last year. And we were getting set up there for some dear, dear, dear friends, uh, Bruce and Marty up there in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, you know about them because that's where I was doing. I've been doing programs up there for years during the during the summers, uh, during July uh, from uh, from their house uh, up there in uh, in Ed, the Evergreen area. So, uh, so I've got a picture of us uh, doing that. And uh, the funny thing was, I'll just tell this one last story. Um, when he set up his Dobsonian, his fourteen inch Dobsonian, um, something went wrong with the motor. Now, now he is a this guy can design anything. And so he fixed it himself later on, but you can't sort of do that out in someone's side yard in the dark. Um, so he didn't have the go-to feature, which I have on like on my Mead. If you're not familiar with modern telescopes, what's really neat is once you get them zeroed in on like, do I do a two-star fix, uh, then you can just tell it, I want to see Alberio. And, and then it tracks, it'll track it. So 
So if you don't have that, then you have to keep moving the tel telescope a little bit each time because the Earth's moving. It's rotating and it's moving. Um, but his, he couldn't use his for that. Didn't slow him down a bit. The guy knows the night sky so well that even without the ability to use that, he just grabbed the scope and just, I'd say it's about right there. And then he does a little fine tune. Yep, there it is. Um, it, it, it's amazing. And when we were looking at Saturn and Jupiter, he just simply, and then you've got this moon and this is its features about that. And he's not looking at anything. It's just off the top of his head. So, uh, the guy's, the guy's brilliant. He, he really, really is. So biblical science Institute, look him up, uh, enjoy. I tried reading. I started reading the physics of Einstein book. Yeah, no, uh, cause my weakest area, I mean, I got all A's in it, but my weakest area was mathematics. And uh, though I could spell it, <laughs> unlike uh, Harvard. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, whew, that was, it was deep. It was, it was very, very deep. So anyways, thanks, Jason, for uh, joining with us. Now, I uh, do want to discuss a couple other things. Um, I have to admit, um, there is some weird stuff weird, weird stuff going on with Pope Francis. Um, Pope Francis. Um, for Earth Day, now Earth Day is, was, what was it, Wednesday? I think it was Wednesday this week. Tuesday or Wednesday. Sometime, it was sometime earlier this week. Earth Day brings out a lot of loonies. Not quite as many this year because they can't come out anyways because they're hiding in their homes, but um, Pope Francis is, let's just put it this way. There are a lot of Roman Catholic Marxists in South America, and he's one of them. He's just, he, he would not really stand out as being overly odd in South America. Uh, liberation theology and Marxism have always been bedfellows. And there is currently a Marxist, full-blown Marxist bishop of Rome. That's just all there is to it. But he's more than just your standard everyday commie. Um, we have failed to care for the earth. We have sinned against the earth, the Pope said during his Wednesday audience, and how does the earth react? There is a Spanish saying that is very clear about this. It goes, God always forgives. We humans sometimes forgive and sometimes not. The earth never forgives, he warned, departing from his prepared text. The earth does not, listen to this, the earth does not forgive. If we have despoiled the earth, its response will be very ugly. The pontiff has declared that the Wuhan coronavirus is nature's response to humanity's failure to address the catastrophes wrought by human-induced climate change. Really? You're sure about that? Um... Asked earlier this month whether the COVID-19 pandemic is an opportunity for an ecological conversion, the pontiff reasserted his conviction that humanity has provoked nature by not responding adequately to the climate crisis. That's paganism, folks. I mean, okay, 
buy into all the um, climate science alarmism you want. Um, buy into AOCs. We've got, well, it'll be 11 years now. Uh, and then it's all over. And of course, you can go back every single generation going back to the 70s has had the same thing. You know, we, we, we'll never make it to the 80s. We'll never make it to the 90s. We'll never make it past 2000. Uh, billions dead, you know, um, all this type of stuff, uh, all in an effort to push stuff one particular direction. Okay. But a lot of this stuff becomes pagan. And what I mean is it, you've got mother earth, you've got Gaia. Um, you have, you have this personification of nature itself to where this planet becomes a female deity. And the Pope's talking about the earth, about the earth not forgiving, and the response will be very ugly. Now, that's not scientific thinking. Now, a lot of this stuff isn't scientific thinking. A lot of this stuff is modeling. And folks, have we not learned? Have we not learned over the past couple of months that modeling doesn't work all that well when you don't have good data to put into the model in the first place. Um, any model, and I don't care, AI, the whole nine yards, you still got to put the data in. Um, and if you've got bad data, you, you, you can, well, you can do, there's, there's two ways you can mess it with it. You can have bad data, and then you can create the model to manipulate the data. And we have now seen exactly how that works with COVID-19. And we had seen it already. Why did we trust this stuff? Because we'd already seen these models predicting that we would have oceans. Well, uh, remember a guy named Al Gore? Remember a guy getting a Nobel Peace Prize, I think? Did he not get a Nobel? Didn't he get a Nobel Prize for that? He did a movie. I know Obama got a, uh, Obama got a Nobel Peace Prize for not being George Bush. That was, that was it. That was the whole reason he got it. Yeah, that was the Do Nothing Award. But didn't, didn't Gore get some... If, if he didn't get a Nobel Prize, he got some big prize for calling us all out and basically telling us that there would be no ice left on planet Earth by, I don't know, sometime 10 years ago. What? What, a Nobel Prize? Yep, climate change. There you go. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you go back and you look at his his movie, and all the stuff that he said hasn't happened. We're well past the days when when... There was to be no ice left on Earth, and yet there's record ice at the South Pole. And yeah. it did make for a really cool movie. Yeah. So the the this model stuff, you can make models do almost anything you want models to do. That's the problem. Um, and this Pope is totally sold out, completely sold out to all of the leftist Marxist stuff. If it's out there, Pope Francis believes it. And he's promoting it within a theological context. Forgive the earth, forgiving. We are sinning. 
I mean, I know a lot of Roman Catholics that are just cringing every time he starts speaking because he is such a leftist and he expresses his leftism in theological categories. You can't get around it. And so there is another... Um, oh, that's not what I wanted. Where'd that go? I don't know. I guess I lost it. Uh, oh, no, no. There it is. There is um, another article, uh, and it came out yesterday. Um, this is on uh, cnsnews.com. Michael W. Chapman. There are numerous... Um, Roman Catholic leaders who are still very concerned about the last year sign last year's signing uh, with the Muslims of the document that specifically, and we talked about it at the time, specifically says that diversity of religions is willed by God. This this is if please. To, to my Roman Catholic friends, can we not agree that Innocent III and Pope Francis, he's not Francis I till he dies, but that Innocent III and Francis are not on the same page on foundational issues of definition? I mean, and I'm not even talking about the, the simple statements where he says, you know, homosexuality, who am I to judge? Um, atheists going to heaven because they baptize their children. Because uh, I know what your answer to that is. Your answer is, well, those weren't official pronouncements. But you know in your heart of hearts that that represents what he believes. And that's the filter that he is running in choosing new cardinals. And in choosing people that sit on the Papal Biblical Institute and everything else, you cannot simply, back when I first, first started dealing with Roman Catholicism, when John Paul II was the Pope, what you heard over and over again was, we have someone we can turn to to give us infallible interpretation. Well, you're getting an interpretation from this man. And yet most of you would agree with me that what you're getting is Marxist foolishness. How do you deal with this? If you try to pull back from what y'all were saying before about the Pope to the universal teaching of the Church, well, conciliarism died a long time ago. You may want to try to revive it, but you're going to have to admit that while it had its day... Uh, after the Council of Pisa and things like that, briefly, it was eventually crushed. And that Rome, by, by the time Vatican I was not a council that was friendly toward conciliarism. That is the idea of the supremacy of councils. When you're defining the infallibility of the Pope, okay, the Pope ran that, ran that council. Um, so you might say, well, we're, we're going to go back to it. Well, if you go back to it, isn't that an admission that you, there was error before? So much for the error of the church. Well, I know there's always a way to get around anything. But right now, 
Guys, honestly, your church is being led by a Marxist heretic. And that Marxist and, and her- heretical from your own side. I mean, I think all popes are heretics, obviously. When you let yourself be called by the names of the Trinity, I consider you a heretic. But from your own side, from your own definitions, the guy is heretical. And are you really thinking that it's good enough to say, yeah, he is, but he will never teach it infallibly and do the, he has to say these words and cross himself this direction and face this way and be wearing this type of shoes um, to actually make that work. Because you want to see how papal authority works? Look at who the next pope's going to be. Who decides the next pope? The cardinals. Who's stacking the deck amongst the cardinals? This guy. Who is assigning the people to the papal biblical commission or to this commission and that commission? He is driving the ship hard left. You know that. And it will have an extended impact upon where the Roman Catholic Church goes. I think, honestly, this may have, this may be why we're hearing more about orthodoxy right now, is because if you, it's harder to get a ship with five rudders and five wheels to turn than it is one with a single wheel and a single rudder. And this has always been the issue between the East and the West, between Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy, is that Rome is a monarchical system, and Eastern Orthodoxy has always had to struggle with having multiple apostolic sees in the East. And so they have collegiality. Now, it doesn't always work, and it's not working right well right now at all, and they have their divisions too. But the point is, it's really hard to get... One person can't just come along and crank the wheel over and get orthodoxy to go one way or the other. It just it, It's not possible. But one pope can. And that's one of the major differences between the two. And I, I have to wonder if that isn't partly why you have that type of thing going on. So there is a bunch of, of people, um, big names, uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke, uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider of Kazakhstan. This is how, what, what could possibly bring about people in the United States talking about a bishop from Kazakhstan, and yet he is a hero, a hero to conservative, apologetically-minded Roman Catholics in the United States right now. Because he has stood up and said, no way, this is, this is not right. Uh, Athanasius Schneider, you'll hear more about him. Um, or you won't hear more about him in the future. Who knows? <laughs> That's just papal politics. Um, I don't know how long Francis is going to be in the pontificate. Um, he's getting older. 
And he does not have to stay there. His predecessor set a new precedent. He could retire. And then what happens? I don't know. Oh, wouldn't that be interesting? Wouldn't wouldn't it be fascinating if Frankie retires and then you got three living popes after they choose the next one? Wow. Um, would that be absolutely amazing? Amazing. But the fact is, as we saw again, you've got a South American Marxist who thinks the earth is throwing a hissy fit, and that's why we have coronavirus. Uh, it couldn't be that that bioweapons lab in Wuhan. <laughs> no. Anybody who suggested that was already handed a tinfoil hat um, by, by the media, even though a few weeks later, everybody had to start going, yeah, there's actually good reason to think that, but yeah, you know, then we don't want... That didn't really promote the narrative. Uh, but Pope Francis, the earth is is angry and she's there you go. That's that's what's happening. Um my how things have changed. My how things have changed. Um I think back to those first debates with Roman Catholics and now I look at the situation they're facing and Oh, the, the change with Mormonism, the changes with the Watchtower Society. Part, a lot of the Watchtower Society changed just because the world has changed so much. But the changes in Mormonism, who knows where that's going to go? Um, yeah. Um, change seems to be the, uh, the universal language now. Um, but anyway, one last thing. Um, uh, I want to... My mind is, as most of you know, is very strange, and it reviews things that I have said um, over the course of hours after I've said them. And once you get as old as I am now, you start asking yourself, did I make that point? Did I make that point? So when I'm thinking about a program, when I'm thinking about how I'm going to, you know, what I want to be talking about and stuff like that... um, Sometimes I think of really, really cool things to say, and then I don't say them. <laughs> but since I thought about saying it, I'm not sure whether I did or didn't. That's one of the reasons why I may repeat things sometimes is, well, did I already say that? I don't know. Well, I better get it out there just in case. And most people aren't going to remember when I said it the first time anyways. And so yeah, there you go. So one of the things that crossed my mind is yesterday when we talked about the Qumran material is I wanted to make sure that I communicated that the re- one of the reasons I shared that information was that it's so painfully obvious that the primary influence upon the Thanksgiving hymns are the Hebrew scriptures themselves. That's why I went from reading from that one scroll, 1QHA, to 1QISA. Isaiah. The great Isaiah scroll was found in the same cave with the Thanksgiving hymns. 
And so the first thought that should cross anyone's mind is that the first foremost influence in anything that's found in that cave, when you're asking that question, is going to be, well, what else was it found with? What else did the people of that community consider important enough to hide in caves as a part of their library? And the answer to that is they found the, the, the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, to be that important. And so I'm not saying that they were, as a result, completely uninfluenced by anything else in the world. But I am saying that if you minimize what must be the most important influence upon them and then point us to something else, you might have a reason why you're doing that. And it might not be an appropriate reason. It might not be using that information as best as it should be. And then the the other thing, and I'm actually going to hold this off. Um, I have it up here, but I, I don't want I don't want to do that. I will maybe leave it for Monday. Maybe make a make a note to myself here when I delete the the Francis stuff um, in my thing. Um, I want to make sure that everyone understood that the reason that I read from Isaiah 40, the reason that I made reference to um, that whole section, the trial of the false gods, where, where God says, tell me what's going to happen when he's, when he's got the, the false gods on the, in the witness stand. Tell me what's going to happen and tell me what happened in the past and why it happened. That means that the challenge that God makes to the false gods has to be a challenge that he himself can fulfill. And no matter what we do when we start talking about determinism is we have to define whether we're talking about naturalistic determinism, whether we're talking about supernaturalistic determinism, we're talking about monotheistic determinism, polytheistic determinism. Are we talking about anything that can constrain God in what he can do? These are all categories. As I've pointed out, Ken Wilson is a determinist. If he believes that God knows the future, and he said God is atemporal, knows the future. If he knows the future, then he's a determinist. He is a form of determinist. It's not the same kind of determinism as Reformed determinism is, by any stretch of the imagination, there is no divine decree that is exhaustive in provisionist theology. But that doesn't change the fact that when you're quoting from scholarly sources, if you believe God knows what the end is going to be and where people are going to be, you are a determinist. Now, how he came to that knowledge how that knowledge itself came into existence, different issue. Has to be discussed. That's why there is massive categorical differences between the Stoics, various groups of the Gnostics, between regular, regular Gnostics, Valentinian Gnostics, in different forms of Manichaeanism. There are differences because that one term, determinism, is extremely broad and there are numerous factors that have to be brought together to define what is being said. And so I hope that 
you understood the reason why I was looking at Isaiah 40 is to establish that the God of the Hebrew Scriptures has a decree. By that decree, he has complete control over the natural realm. That's what the whole point of Isaiah 40, 26 was, was he brings forth their host. Not one of them is missing. That's what brought me into, you know, I was thinking about all the astronomy stuff because I knew that Jason was going to be on today. But the point is that means he has all power and authority in the natural realm. And the question then becomes, does that authority extend into the spiritual realm? And is mankind a special violation of his authority so that mankind has an autonomy that no one else has. These are some of the issues that have to be addressed. And when you try to flatten everything out, and what have I accused Leighton Flowers of doing for years? Flattening out the biblical perspective on this very issue. And when you flatten it out historically... So that you can, with one breath, talk about the alleged one view of the Stoics, the Gnostics, and the Manichaeans. You've flattened it out to where it's no longer anywhere near truthful. That's the key issue. That's the key issue. So, all right. Thanks for listening to the program today. Thanks again to Jason Lyle, Biblical Science Institute. Look him up. Support him. Um... Get his books. They're really, really good books. I can highly recommend them. I can't understand one of them, but the rest of them are really cool. Uh, (laughs) And Lord willing, Lord willing, um, we'll see you on Monday. God bless.